Mayo Clinic presents Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. Hello, and welcome to the October Grand Rounds episode of the Always On EM podcast, an emergency medicine podcast from the Mayo Clinic Department of Emergency Medicine. I'm one of the two hosts and founders of this program. My name is Dr. Venk Bellamkanda, or Venk Levankomyosin. The other host is, of course, Dr. Alex Finch. Before we get into the meat of the show today, at the time of this recording, we are acutely aware that in many parts of the world, and for many people listening, there may be unrest, you may be in danger, you may be hurting physically or emotionally. Alex and I won't pretend to know or fully understand everyone's experiences and situations, but please know we and the entire Mayo Clinic Department of Emergency Medicine wish for safety, love, and hope for everyone around the world. Life isn't easy, and certainly it's not fair, but we have love in our hearts and hope to bring light to any corner of the globe that we can. There are a few lights we hope to recognize before we start the show. First, this is the last day of the Emergency Nurses Week, and I want to highlight the amazing nurses that work in the Mayo Clinic emergency departments around the globe. I have been a student of your service, a recipient of your service, and a teammate in service with many of you, and can say that you are the finest group of nurses I've ever had the privilege of working with. In addition, Alex's partner in this world, Jennifer, who previously worked in the emergency department with us, was recently recognized for her outstanding care of patients with a Nursing Achievement Award for Mayo Clinic. Congratulations to you if you are listening. Now, before I introduce our Grand Round speaker to you, please take a moment and subscribe to our show. And if you're on a platform like Apple Podcasts, please provide a comment and a rating if you wouldn't mind. These would help us so much. We are so grateful to everyone who listens, and thank you to those who go that extra little bit and provide a rating and a review. Okay, enough preamble, right? You need to know our guest. He brings hope where it can often feel that hope is absent. He has devoted his life to helping those who healthcare in general can leave feeling abandoned. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Dr. Arya Mohabit. Dr. Mohabit is a consultant in the Division of General Internal Medicine and an assistant professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He completed his undergraduate degree in biology at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. Following this, he went to medical school at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and he completed his internal medicine residency at Mayo Clinic here in Rochester. He's been on staff since 2013 and has a wide array of clinical and scholarly interests, including fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, post-COVID syndrome, and is engaged in various CME conferences and patient education activities. In fact, we have been work friends since his rotation as a resident through our department, and I didn't appreciate that he had the power to help me be a better doctor until I heard him speak at a conference earlier this year. That very day, I became committed to having him speak to our team because I know truly in my heart that he can make us a better department, and I'm confident that you will be better for having listened. So with that, Dr. Mohabit, the floor is yours. Good afternoon, and thank you, everyone, for joining today. And Dr. Balmkanda, thank you very much for the very warm and very kind introduction. A couple of things I wanted to go through. I was asked to give a talk today on central sensitization, and I'm extremely honored to be able to do that in all of your presence. 
Um, I've actually never given a talk uh, for our emergency medicine colleagues. Um, it is long overdue, um, and I'm so grateful that uh, Venk had reached out after hearing me talk in a conference which was in Hawaii, and it was probably one of the best places to give a talk in January. So uh, I would say Rochester is second, but it, it, it's close enough. So I want to just take a moment to say something that I've actually wanted to say to you all uh, for quite some time, but I've actually never been in a room full of emergency medicine uh, staff, and, and I know there's a bunch of you also live streaming. I saw the, uh, the roster. Um, you all do something that is incredibly difficult. Um, I know we're all in healthcare. Um, but my version of healthcare is different than yours. I, I get to sit in a room in a, with a lot of windows and I can rely on a triage system that determines who I see and when I see them and how I see them and all the labs and all the testing and everything is done for me. Um, and I can just sit there and have a conversation with a patient. You don't have that luxury, right? You all, in my opinion, are on the front lines of hell. You have to take any and every person that comes in there, regardless if you want to, regardless if you feel good, if you don't feel good. There's no triage. There's no, hey, we're already full. No, you will sit there until the job gets done. And that is a credit to who you all are. I, I did my emergency medicine rotation. This would have been 2009 as an intern. Venk was my staff. It damn near killed me. I mean, it was one month and I, I couldn't believe how tough it was uh, to do these rotations. And you all do it day in, day out with conviction, with pride and with grace. And for that, you all need to be rewarded. You really do. Um, I, I think as a society, we realized how important you all were during the beginnings of the pandemic, right? So we had, when all of me and my type of people went home because we closed the clinic, you all couldn't go home. You guys were actually building the plane and flying it at the same time and trying to figure out what do we do, what do we not do? Um, and so society gave us gave you all a little bit of a reward, right? They gave you some discounts for healthcare discounts, and there might have been people honking their horns, but unfortunately, society kind of has, has moved on. Uh, but I do want you all to know that, that people like me, my wife who's here, there's a lot of people. We, we haven't forgotten what you all have done. So thank you for doing what you do. My hope is that this discussion today will help to augment what you're already doing, which is already incredibly difficult. My role here is to give you some tips and tricks on how I've learned how to talk to individuals who come at you with not one, not two, but 17 or 18 different complaints and different issues. And my hope is that you will take away some of the framework that I'm going to be sharing with you. And what is this term central sensitization? Why do I even have that as a title? Why do you hear that in many of the clinical notes these days? What is it? Why is it? How is it happening? And how can you leverage that to have a little bit more rapport and more hope when you see your patients uh, in, in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. So other than that, I don't have anything relevant to disclose. I've just given you all my disclosures. There's four learning objectives today. We're gonna try to learn what actually central sensitization is. We're gonna start with a basic definition. Then we're gonna talk about what are the conditions that are associated with this pathophysiological process called central sensitization. What are the things that we normally see in the emergency department? What do we see in the outpatient? What do we see day in, day out that's related to this process? Then we're going to spend a good amount of time because I think it is actually the most important part of this is to understand what actually is happening in someone's body who becomes centrally sensitized. I guarantee you, if you haven't already this week, you will by the end of the week 
see a patient who's centrally sensitized, whether they come in with chronic pain, chronic fatigue, chronic headaches, irritable bowel syndromes, chronic pelvic pain, you name it. It's going to be a combination of all of those types of symptoms. So you need to understand the pathophysiology so that you will be better armed to explain to that patient what they're going through and how you can actually help to move things forward. And the last thing we're going to focus on are what are the treatment strategies that we know of uh, that are evidence-based that can help with these conditions. So to start, I want to start with a case. So let's talk about this individual named Tony. He's a 26-year-old gentleman who's sitting in the emergency department waiting list, uh, wait room, and uh, his chief complaint is that he's feeling awful. When you take a history, basically what you get from him is that he hurts everywhere, head to toe. His muscles, his joints, everything hurt. He's got headaches, he's got fatigue, he's got widespread abdominal pain, and he can't think the way that he used to think. So he's, he's complaining of brain fog. And this has been going on for at least eight months. It's probably been going on longer, but he was able to push through it. Um, but now he just can't push through it. And it's actually impacted his daily life. He's not working the number of hours that he used to. He's not going out for job promotions the way he used to. Uh, when he comes home, he's kind of coming with home and just crashing and burning. He's laying on the couch. Uh, he has no social life. He's got no personal life. Uh, he just veges on Netflix and basically sits there until the next morning when he has to go back to work and do the best that he can. Now, this individual, like many of our patients that we see, he's had numerous workups done locally, right? It's not that people don't try to get better. I promise you people are trying to get better. And the physicians that are seeing them, the nurse practitioners and PAs that are seeing them, they are doing the best they can. But this patient tells you, look, I've had a whole host of workup and they found nothing, right? Despite the fact that they've given him actual diagnoses, they've given him a diagnosis of migraines, IBS, chronic low back, chronic neck pain and anxiety. He doesn't feel that the workup is actually sufficient and can answer what he's going through. So, this individual applies to general internal medicine and through the triage program comes to me and I or one of my colleagues says, no, we don't have bandwidth to see this individual. Or usually what we say is we have nothing to offer. So this patient gets refused uh, a denied access to Mayo Clinic. So what do many of our patients do? They get in the car, they drive the six hours and they come to your emergency department. And this is the complaint. He feels awful. So what do you all do? You do a physical exam. He's what I call in mild distress due to being pissed off and frustrated. That, that's his distress that he's in. But he's otherwise afebrile. He's healthy. His examination's not really revealing other than he's got a lot of tenderness in his abdomen. It, from a neurological standpoint, from an extremity standpoint, everything else is normal. Heart, lungs, all that's normal. Uh, very astutely, you guys do what you need to do. Make sure we get a pantheon of labs. Is any of this stuff abnormal? No. You've checked blood counts, electrolytes, liver tests, kidney tests, lactate. You're even checking inflammatory markers in case you're not seeing the synovitis, but maybe there is some sort of underlying inflammation, thyroid function, all of that is normal. Given his abdominal complaints on examination and the headaches, you also get imaging, which is perfect. It, it, it's what you should be doing. And as you can see, all of his imaging is perfectly normal. So unfortunately, this scenario is very, very common, right? And your medical student or intern that you're working with is on lunch. So it is up to you to go back in that room and unveil the fact that all of these tests are once again normal for Tony. So I want to hear from you all. What do you do? How do you walk back into that room? How do you look Tony in the eye and tell him these are what your results are? And the next step is then after you tell them that, what do you offer? Thoughts from the group here? Please. My strategy has always been to first thank them for coming and let them know that Mayo as a hospital will partner with them to try and make their life better. And then I review the symptoms that they came in with 
that I heard. And usually in this case, I'd probably add a qualifier like and many other things, too many things that anyone should have to be, live with, something like that. And then I'll recap our role in the emergency department to make sure first that they're going to survive, don't need any immediate interventions, and that it's safe to get them into the outpatient arena if possible. And then I'll go through how we did that. Again, thank them for coming, apologize that their life isn't what they expected and what anybody would want, and then listen to the reaction afterwards. And I would ask for the group as well, that reaction afterwards. It can be variable, I'm assuming. Some people will be very understanding. Yep, this, I, you're right. I don't, I'm not dying today. Uh, maybe tomorrow, but not today. Other people might say, how dare you say I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. I'm perfectly normal. I, I don't feel normal. So you're absolutely right, Venk. Um, what I'm hearing from you is you use the term partner. You know, you're trying to give hope. You're trying to not only provide sympathy, but actual empathy. Uh, we, we understand, we hear what you're going through. So my hope with this discussion today is you do exactly what you're doing plus the following. And that is my hope so that thou, so that you can limit the amount of variability of what that return response is going to be. I would argue there is a lot that this patient could be offered even in the emergency department, not when I see them in the fibro clinic or chronic fatigue clinic, but even in the emergency department. And what all of this will rely on is this term, central sensitization. So I've used this term, you've seen this term, but most of us in this room probably don't know what is he actually talking about when he says central sensitization. Well, whether you know it or not, Tony, that patient, he is centrally sensitized. You can tell. He's got chronic widespread pain. He's got headaches. He's got abdominal pain. If you got more history from him, you'll find out that he has a pantheon of symptoms, not just the five or six I listed. He probably has 20 or 30 symptoms out there. So what is central sensitization? Well, this little paragraph has taken me more than 10 years to put together right? Because there are a variety of definitions out there that are not helpful, in my opinion. How I have defined central sensitization is that it is a pathophysiological process that underlines a variety of different conditions and symptoms. And it's because of the fact that there are changes occurring at the level of the central nervous system, at structural, functional, and chemical levels, that all in all will lead to alterations in how one's sensations are processed. When those sensations are being processed differently, a person basically is fair game to get any sort of symptom imaginable. So there's really three parts here. There are changes that occur in the brain and spinal cord. Those changes lead to symptom sensory alterations in how everything's being processed. And in essence, you're taking the volume knob on their radio and turning that volume knob from what used to be a one or a two out of 10 to a nine or a 10 out of 10. But the volume knob of what? Well, the answer is any sensation. That can be touch, that can be temperature, that can be vibration, that can be pressure, that can be pain, that can be numbness tinglings, that can be energy conservation, that can be fatigue. It can be any sensation that a human being feels. So imagine you take a person who normally their sensations are being processed at a normal volume of let's say one or two out of 10. It's a non-issue. It's not even in our conscious thought. But if you were to ramp up that volume knob to a 10 out of 10, they will feel every single sensation. That is hell. That is truly hell. If someone, if anyone in this room has any of these central sensitization-based conditions, you know what I'm talking about. It is a horrendous feeling to feel that way. So central sensitization is a process. It's a pathophysiological process. That's the first thing I want you to remember. What are the conditions that are associated with central sensitization? Well, believe it or not, 
Central sensitization was first defined in 1983, right? I was one year of age, right? So just because I have a definition, don't think I invented it. I didn't. Clifford Wolf and his colleagues did that at Harvard. But it took almost 30 years from understanding that central sensitization exists in the rodent model to translate that into the humans. It took about 30 years for us as a healthcare community to figure that out. But once that floodgate opened, a ton of different diagnoses came under that umbrella. There's right now about 50 different diagnoses that are associated with central sensitization. I only listed whatever I could fit on one slide here. But I guarantee you, you all see this every single day. And if you haven't this week, it's because you were off yesterday, right? You will see this, whether it's fibromyalgia, chronic pain, whether it's irritable bowel, whether it's irritable bladder, whether it's jaw pain issues, chronic fatigue, burning mouth. There's a section here called post-infectious syndromes, right? Everyone talks about post-COVID or long COVID. And yes, that's the flavor of the month. But don't forget, we see patients becoming centrally sensitized for decades after mono, after Lyme disease, after influenza, after pneumonia, after SARS, after MERS. It's just that we had a pandemic that we've all lived through and 10 to 15% of the pandemic survivors now will become centrally sensitized and develop long COVID or post COVID. So believe it or not, that's if all you do is see post COVID syndrome, that's job security, right? It, it, it's unbelievably common. Every single one of these conditions you're thinking, okay, does my patient actually come in saying I have fibromyalgia? No, they never do. Fibromyalgia is what I call the other F word. No one uses it. No one wants to use it because it's a, it's a dirty word, right? It, it's got such negative uh, connotations with it. But they'll come to you and say, I have a lot of pain. My everything hurts. It feels like I was run over by a bus. The problem is they don't just tell you I have pain. They will also tell you, I have a lot of numbness and tingling. They'll also tell you, I, I cough, but there's nothing coming up. They'll also tell you, I get a lot of dizziness and lightheadedness. They'll tell you, please turn down the lights, right? I have my sunglasses on and these lights are still too bright. They'll, they'll tell you, I have headaches all the time. I can't do what I used to do. So the point is, does Tony have really 10 things wrong with him? Or does he have one big thing wrong with him that's manifesting itself in five, 10 different ways? And that's what central sensitization is. That's what I want you all to start understanding. It's the old adage, it's hard to tell the forest for the trees. From now on, every time you see a patient who comes in and you're thinking, I wonder if this person is centrally sensitized or not, think of every single one of their symptoms as a tree. There's a neck pain tree. There's a fatigue tree. There's a headache tree. There's a you know, muscle pain tree. There's a brain frog tree. There's a, there's a nausea tree. There's an anxiety tree. There's a restless sleep tree. They might have 15, 20, 30 different trees. But I would actually challenge you to take a step back and understand how so many of those trees have come together in a short period of time. And when those trees come together, they build a forest. And that forest is what we call central sensitization. So that analogy, I say that to 100% of my patients. If the forest for the trees is helpful to you, use that. If it's not helpful to you, come up with your own analogy. But the symptoms... The diagnoses, these are the trees. But when all of these trees get planted and you take a step back and you see, my God, I have so many trees. Do you want Tony to try to tackle the 17 trees that are planted? Well, good luck. He's going to have to see 17 different ologists to try to figure it out, right? And that's never going to help him. Instead, tell Tony, 
let's take a step back. Let's start looking at the entire forest because that is what is going on here. I'm not going to ask if you should care. You all do care. That's why you're here. The question is, why? Why should we care? Is this stuff we're going to see or not see? Well, I've tried to take the three archetypal conditions associated with central sensitization. So the first that you're, you, you see every day is patients coming in with IBS, irritable bowel type symptoms. 15% of the world's population, right? In the US alone, we're about 45 million people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. What I see every day is patients coming in with fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia, people think it's not that common. I, I beg to differ. One out of every 12 Americans has fibromyalgia. The problem is they just don't know they have fibromyalgia, right? They're just, they're going from one ologist to the other, trying to figure this out. People with fibromyalgia are 10 times more likely to either be on disability or be unemployed, right? So this is a huge, huge societal issue. And then you have probably one of the saddest conditions associated with central sensitization, and that's chronic fatigue syndrome. And the reason why I say it's sad is despite the fact that people like me and my colleagues have come up with 20 different diagnostic criteria that can be used, more than 90% of the patients out there don't actually carry a formal diagnosis. So we're really good at publishing papers and coming up with how to diagnose this, but our action is lacking significantly. The other thing that's embarrassing is only about a third of medical schools have any information on chronic fatigue. So I went to a very good medical school and I remember our rheumatologist came up to the podium and said, if you get to the point that you're diagnosing a patient with either fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue, then congratulations, you missed the correct diagnosis. That is what was told to me. And I'm not from the stone age, right? That was like 2008, 2009. So how did Tony get to where he is? Did he wake up yesterday with 17 different problems? The answer is no. If you take a moment to actually talk to Tony, which I know you already are doing, what you will see are common risk factors that are almost invariably present in this patient population. They will usually tell you, yeah, I know I've had pain for eight months or so, but you know, if I actually think about it, I had a lot of pain growing up. I used to be out of school all the time with abdominal pain. I would have headaches. Uh, you know, I would, I would have traumatic events occur. I would have falls. I would get injured in soccer. I, I see a lot of stories, people telling me injuries in gymnastics and softball, these types of things, um, motor vehicle accidents. So there, there's a pain sensitivity history there that people start having painful stimuli occurring to them above and beyond one after the other, even in childhood. They've had numerous traumatic events. And don't forget, a surgical intervention is a it's a huge traumatic event. So when I see people that have more surgeries than they are years old, then you know there's a problem there. And I see that all the time. Infections. An infection is another traumatic event, but I classify that as a separate risk factor because we see that so commonly. Person is perfectly fine. They get a bout of mono. They don't die, but they're never the same. Maybe that relates, maybe it doesn't, but you all have seen how that relates in COVID. Patient doesn't die. Maybe the patient doesn't even get hospitalized because it's a mild symptom, but slowly but surely they start developing chronic persistent symptoms that just won't go away. I use the term insult. Uh, historically, people have used the word stressor. I don't use the word stressors um, because it's it has a negative connotation. So I tell people, tell me some of the insults that you have experienced in your life. And they'll look at me and be like, do you mean who made fun of me? No. Tell me things that have gone bad for you. Tell me things that have affected you, that have negatively perturbed your body. 
These can be things that are physical, mental, psychological, sexual, anything. Work-life imbalance. You, you, you'll be amazed how many people tell you, I live a perfect life. And then you're like, okay, great. And then they say, I'm working 80 plus hours you know, a week. Okay, that is the exact opposite of a perfect life. You know, like how, how does that make any sense? So if you take, they'll give you an onion, right? Start peeling that onion and you're going to see how much this stuff is going to burn your eyes. Having a first degree family member is important. Many of the central sensitization conditions are at the range of if you have a family member, the likelihood of the next generation, whether it's a first degree or the, the, the following generation, it's about 10 times more likely to also have a central sensitization-based condition. So if someone says to you, yeah, mom has IBS and this one has migraines and this one has POTS and this one has that, okay, there's a very good chance you're talking to someone who's centrally sensitized. And then this idea of you know having a pre-existing rheumatic or mood disorder. I see a lot of people who have had lupus for 20, 30 years, but their lupus is under great control. Their inflammatory markers are all normal, yet they feel horrible. And so rheumatology sends them all the time. What, what are we missing here? The answer is you're not missing anything from a lupus standpoint. It's just this person has evolved from lupus to being centrally sensitized. And mood is an important component here. I do not want anyone to leave here thinking all of these patients are depressed and they're anxious and that's why they have pain. The answer is no. I would argue it's the other way around. These are usually people who have very, very high pain tolerances. These are the people who are the type A anal retentive go-getters. They will push through everything and anything you throw their way. But there comes a point that every single person has, which is what I call the breaking point. There is that one additional event, that one additional insult that will occur to them that basically knocks them out. And so when you see someone who is anxious, who is giving you PTSD type symptoms, who's giving you depression type symptoms, it's because they are dealing with this and have been dealing with this for month after month, year after year. I have seen patients that have been on this diagnostic journey decades, plural, right? you cannot imagine how difficult it is to not have an answer for the majority of one's adult life. But that's what the vast majority of these patients are dealing with. So are there risk factors? Absolutely, there are. How does one present? Well, this is just a simple diagram to show no two people present the same, right? There's a lot of variability with how people will present. On the x-axis, you're looking at these events or the insults that are occurring on the y-axis. It's, it's the symptoms. So let's take that top one, for example. Let's say a person's living a perfectly normal, healthy life. They're in a car accident. They have some symptoms, but then they get better. Things are going nicely, and then they have a new job. Well, that job brings on a, a bunch of symptoms for them, but then things kind of curtail and they're doing fine. Then they got mono, and then they don't die from mono, but they're never the same. There are some people that will tell you from childhood, from, from being in the womb onwards, I could feel pain. And they'll say, from the moment I remember, I remember pain and fatigue. Okay, that's that middle graph there. But then something happens. Maybe it's a car accident. Maybe it's a loss of loved one. Maybe it's an assault. I don't know. Something happened that triggered that person's body to become centrally sensitized. And then you have all of these symptoms. So I'm talking about a process, but I'm also well aware that I haven't told you what that process actually entails. So to identify what is actually happening, happening in central sensitization, we have to have a very, very short primer on what is pain and how does pain happen. And this is not a typo. There actually are three types of pain, right? So in medical school, I was taught there's two types. There are three types. The first type that we all know is what we call nociceptive or peripheral pain. This is when you feel pain because you injure a piece of tissue. 
right? So a hammer hits my hand, a car door slams on my foot. I, I step on a shard of glass. I have bodily tissue injury. Thus, we call that nociceptive or peripheral pain. The second type of pain that we all know of is called neuropathic pain. And this is pain due to actual nerve damage or nerve injury. Think of sciatica, think of um, you know these diabetic neuropathy, these types of conditions. When you actually have nerve injury, I would argue that the third type of pain is the most important pain and the most debilitating. And that's what we call centralized or nociplastic pain. I didn't make that term up. It's again, been around for about 20 years. This is pain that originates from the central nervous system in the absence of any nerve or tissue damage. So this is the exact opposite of what many of us learned. We always thought there has to be a tissue injury or there has to be a nerve injury. And if not, then the person's crazy and they're making it up. Well, no, we, we kind of missed the boat on that one. Centralized pain or nociplastic pain is, think of it as CNS dysregulation, which leads to CNS origination of pain. So what is normal pain processing? Let's take this example here. Let's say this person puts their hand on a hot stove. Well, at the site of injury of that hand, chemicals will get released. And those chemicals will stimulate the nerves in the hands, which will shoot up the peripheral nerves, up the arm, into the neck, into the spinal cord. And now you've entered the central nervous system. In the central nervous system, it shoots up to that circled area in red. That's called the thalamus. The thalamus from now on, I want you to think of that as the post office. What does the post office do? Well, it takes mail from all over the place. It sorts it out and it sends it where it needs to go. Bless you. So what does the thalamus do here? It takes that signal and it sorts it out by sending it to three specific areas of the body, the frontal cortex, somatosensory cortex, and limbic system. And each of these three things, these three areas have a very specific role in the processing of pain. The frontal cortex will try to identify what just happened, why did it happen, and how did it happen? Okay, I'm in a room, there was a broken glass, I put my hand on the counter, now my hand's bleeding and it hurts. Okay, that's the context of what happened, why did it happen? The limbic system is trying to identify, has this happened before? Is there a memory associated with it? Oh yeah, when I broke a glass a couple of years ago, I did the same thing. It also tries to see, is there an emotion linked to that sensation? Yeah, last time I was crying after I did this, so I'm probably going to start crying again. You can actually predict one's emotions. That makes sense. The limbic system will also activate the sympathetic nervous system. So it activates your fight or flight system. The somatosensory cortex is the easiest. That's like the, the trying to figure out what's the zip code. Where did this message, this piece of mail specifically come from? Well, it came from my left hand. This is what the zip code is. So the thalamus sends all that information. The frontal cortex determines what happened. Why did it happen? Limbic system tries to determine What's the memory associated with it? What's the emotion? Activates the sympathetic nervous system. And the somatosensory cortex tells you exactly what happened. So that signal goes up to the thalamus. It gets processed. And then that information comes back to the thalamus. And from the thalamus, it sends down its own regulatory signals. And what is what do I mean by regulatory signals? Well, it tries to, number one, pull your hand off that shard of glass. It helps you to grab your hand. It'll helps you to apply pressure. It'll helps you to stomp your ground, to swear, whatever you need to do to get through that painful event. What it also is sending is inhibitory signals because you have the alarm bell already went off. You know you're in pain. You don't need to continue to know you're in pain because that's not a useful alarm system. So what does it do? It sends its own signals down to shut off that alarm and keep you alive. That is normal pain processing, all right? We're, we all have that. We're born with that. The problem is 
in central sensitization, every single step of what I just said is completely altered. And that's a problem. Let's go from small to bigger. The changes start on a cellular level. Now, I am not asking for my emergency medicine colleagues to remember the cellular changes. No, but I think it's important to know that from a neuronal level onwards, things no longer play by the rules. These are terms that I, I prayed that I would never have to read again, but action potentials and, and synaptic thresholds and all that stuff. Everything is altered from a neuronal standpoint. The only thing on this slide you need to remember is that because of the fact that nerves will fire differently, nerves will behave differently, you don't need a stimulus anymore to actually feel a sensation. You can auto-generate sensations, is that your sensations are no longer correlated to an, a formal stimulus. We've always thought that a stimulus has to occur for you to feel a sensation. I'm going to change that mindset and say, no, your brain, your spinal cord can actually make you feel something completely void of a stimulus. The location, the duration, the intensity of the stimulus no longer is correlated with that sensation that you're feeling. Let's go to stuff that's actually more helpful though. Believe it or not, there's about 15 years of evidence that shows that if you take a person who's centrally sensitized, you take Tony and you put Tony in an MRI machine and you get a really good radiologist to look at the volumetric sizes of different parts of his brain, his brain will look totally different than someone who is not centrally sensitized. And this is actually easy to understand. Your brain is like an organ, right? Or think of it as a muscle. If I have a weight in my right hand and I keep pumping iron, one day this bicep will get bigger. Let's say this arm's broken and I have a cast on it. Well, I can't use that arm, right? So there's the old saying, you use it or you lose it. So six weeks later, when this cast comes off, my arm looks like a chicken wing. Same idea. If you use something over and over again, that something will get bigger. Parts of the brain that have to do with pain processing, fatigue processing, mood processing, those parts of the brain are actually bigger. I know my hand's going, it's not this big, you don't have that much cranial capacity, but it is bigger. Parts of the brain that you're not using. Ask Tony, when was the last time he did multitasking? When was the last time he wrote a poem? When was the last time he did high level of mathematics? He'll say, I don't have the bandwidth. I have a hard enough time just focusing on what you're telling me, doc. I don't do those things. Well, those parts of the brain get smaller. Prefrontal cortex is a big problem area because that's the part of the brain that makes us who we are. That's the higher level thinking. That's the mathematics. That's that part of it. The hippocampus gets smaller. That's our memory, right? There's a reason why people tell me, doc, I'm 26, but I think I have dementia. You don't have dementia. You have brain fog. On the right side of the screen here, there are numerous studies showing that not only is there volumetric changes, but there's actually functional changes. So if you take Tony and put him in an fMRI or a PET scan, those parts of the brain that are more active, that are more processing will light up even bigger. And the parts of the brain that aren't being used, they will light up much less. This process leads to what we call the wildfire effect in that when a brain and a spinal cord becomes sensitized, greater parts of that brain and to a greater extent will process those sensations. So on the left side here, you have a person who's not centrally sensitized, but let's say they have a fall and their knee hurts. Well, that part of the homunculus will light up and basically that's it. Well, let's say you see someone who has chronic low back pain, but only has chronic low back pain. They're not centrally sensitized. Well, you can see much more of their brain is lighting up in the middle there. But let's say you have someone who is centrally sensitized and has a whole host of chronic symptoms. 
look how much more of their brain is lighting up and with what much more intensity. This is a gradient. This is a, this isn't a, this is actually an artist rendering of functional MRI studies, right? So this is what it is. I, I'm not making this up. This is what their brains look like. It is unbelievable when you show a patient this type of image. The next functional thing that happens is that there are changes to your autonomic nervous system. Now, everyone here knows you have two operating systems. You can either be in the parasympathetic or sympathetic. That's easy. What people forget, though, is why do I flip from the parasympathetic to the sympathetic? Historically, it's for anything that negatively affects us. It can be an injury. It can be a threat. It can be a fatiguing event. It can be a difficult conversation. It can be knowing that I have an eight-hour shift coming up. It can be whatever it is. But normal human beings, their baseline autonomic nervous system is in the parasympathetic mode. And when an event occurs, they will flip immediately without even thinking about it to the sympathetic. Once you're in that sympathetic mode, you're there. But for most human beings, once that event passes, once our shift ends, once the dog stops barking at me, once the scary movie ends, our bodies then slowly come back to the parasympathetic mode because that's our baseline. What happens in central sensitization is that for these individuals, their body continually jumps from parasympathetic to sympathetic, parasympathetic to sympathetic over and over again. And finally, their brain decides, hey, this is not an efficient way of doing this. For whatever reason, I seem to need to be more in the sympathetic mode than in the parasympathetic mode. So what does it do? The new baseline becomes sympathetic. And that's what we call sympathetic hyperactivity or more commonly chronic sympathetic activation. I guarantee all of you, when you are done with your shift, you can check off many of these symptoms because you have been sympathetically activated for the last eight hours. The, I, I pray that when you go home, though, you're, you're able to turn that volume knob back down and, and get yourself back into the parasympathetic mode. I would argue that during COVID, none of you could do that because it, we didn't know what was happening. Our patients with central sensitization have all of these symptoms because their body is persistently in fight or flight mode. This is a beautiful example of what I'm talking about. This is a pulse oximeter from one of my patients in the fibromyalgia clinic. We do overnight oximetry studies. So you wear that little device on your finger. It measures your heart rate and your oxygen on all of our patients. None of them have sleep apnea. So we, we don't do it. Everyone thinks we're doing it for the oxygen. We're not. We're doing it for the heart rate. When I show a patient this, it's eye-opening. When you're asleep, your, your parasympathetic nervous system should keep that heart rate in the 50s or 60s. That is normal. Look at this person. This person's baseline is 80, 90, and the, a vast portion of the evening, heart rate is over 110, even into the 120s. That is what it looks like when you have sympathetic hyperactivity. This is not a special example. I, I can find any of my patients this week. They will all have this right? Everything is shifted up. Why? Because they're no longer in parasympathetic baseline. They are in the sympathetic mode. Some of the other changes, I told you that the limbic system is affected. Well, the limbic system and the hypothalamus, when that gets affected, then the entire HPA axis gets affected. I don't want you to remember anything on the left side of the screen. Just look at that graph. Blue is normal. When you wake up, you're going to have a surge of cortisol. That's the kind of the pick-me-up. And as the day goes on, that cortisol goes down. And then as you go to sleep, cortisol picks back up. That's normal. That's what we expect. But in central sensitization, you do not get the peak. You don't get that peak because there's feedback inhibition. You're also not getting the peak because the hypothalamus isn't working as aggressively as it used to. So if the hypothalamus isn't working, then the pituitary won't be working. And then the adrenal glands won't be working. And thus you see that flattening of that curve. So a patient will tell you, 
doc, I go to sleep tired and yet I wake up exhausted. And my answer is, well, look at your heart rate tracing from last night. And this is most likely what your cortisol level is doing. It's eye-opening when you show this to people. The other change that needs to be highlighted is that CSF studies that have been done for the last decade or so have shown that the concentrations of a variety of chemicals in someone's spinal fluid who's centrally sensitized looks totally different than someone who's not centrally sensitized. Mm -hmm. I'm going to simplify this. You either have the feel-good chemicals on one side of the seesaw or you have the feel-bad chemicals on the other side. All right. What we have seen is if you take a needle, you put it into someone's spine, you draw out that fluid and you do this. And again, this is not done clinically. This is only done from a research standpoint. What we have seen is regardless of what CS-based condition you're talking about, on average, the feel-bad chemicals are eight and a half times higher than normal and the feel-good chemicals are down in the dumps. That's a problem. That's a huge problem for these patients. When you have more of these interleukins and tumor necrosis factors and cytokines and chemokines being elevated in the cerebral spinal fluid, what does that do? Well, that activates the glial cells. The glial cells, think of those as the central nervous system macrophages. Once they become activated, they are going to lead to a pro-inflammatory cascade. All you need to remember is when this cascade occurs, patients feel more pain, more fatigue, more brain fog. They will tell you, I feel like I'm coming down with a cold or a flu, but I don't actually get fevers. I don't actually get chills. My, my swabs are all negative, but I feel like I'm getting a cold or I feel like I'm getting a flu. That's because of this pro-inflammatory cascade that's occurring. Now, I know everything I've used so far is in the context of pain, but I promise you fatigue is basically the same thing. You will get sensitization of central fatigue pathways. You'll get the same structural, functional, and chemical changes in fatigue. You'll get the autonomic nervous system changes. You're going to flip from parasympathetic to sympathetic. There will be the same types of changes, but there are a couple of nuances in chronic fatigue. And that is you're going to get more metabolic changes in the periphery. You're actually going to get more glial cell activation than you do in pain components. And there is stuff that we're still trying to figure out in that what are these differences when it comes to the mitochondrial aspects? Uh, because a lot of our energy comes from that component as well. But in my world, I, I, I'm a lumper. I'm not a splitter. And so I try to tell people, whether you have pain or fatigue, eventually you're going to have both because the pathways are so similar. Yes, there are some nuances. But for the most part, if you have chronic pain, you're going to develop fatigue. If you have chronic fatigue, you're going to develop chronic pain. So what happens? And I said this earlier, in a nutshell, the volume gets amplified, right? Don't even worry about those words on the left. I don't even know why I include these things sometimes. All you need to know is the volume knob, which should have been a one or a two out of 10, now becomes a 20 out of 10. And that poor person will feel every single sensation to a maximum level. When someone becomes centrally sensitized, they develop what I call the trifecta. First is what a phenomenon called hyperalgesia. Hyperalgesia is simple. Things that hurt a normal human being will hurt this person much more. So if, if I were to punch someone, that person will hurt, but they'll hurt for about two to three minutes. If I go to Tony and I punch Tony, Tony will hurt for three days because it won't feel like a punch. It'll feel like a car hit him. Why? Because everything's turned up for him. Tony will develop allodynia. Allodynia is a tricky one. It means things that don't hurt a normal human being will hurt someone who is centrally sensitized. What do I mean? A hug can hurt. 
a pat on the back can hurt. Heavy blankets can hurt. A two-pound cat sitting on your lap can hurt. A bra can hurt. Shoes can hurt. Things that are non-painful stimuli now gets processed as a painful stimuli. They'll also develop what's called global sensory hyper-responsiveness. You've seen this. You just didn't know what it was. These are the people who come to the emergency department with headphones on, sunglasses on, and a hat on. Every type of sensation, light, sound, smells, bother these individuals. They used to eat everything. Not everything bothers them. If you look at their allergy list, they have 27 allergies. But when you actually look at it, they're all listed as other, right? Is it an allergy or is it an intolerance? And I would argue it's an intolerance. That is part of global sensory hyper-responsiveness. About a decade ago, I decided to put this circle together and I named it after myself because I thought my parents would be proud. Um, and so I show this to everyone. I start at the top. And this is, again, the forest and the trees. The name of the forest is central sensitization. The trees are what's written around. Joint pain and muscle pain, we call that fibromyalgia. These people will often have restless leg symptoms. They'll have temperature changes, sleep problems, anxiety, fatigue. They'll have the irritable symptoms of irritable bowel, irritable bladder. They'll get a lot of numbness, tingling. They'll get a dizziness and lightheadedness, depression symptoms, anxiety symptoms, weakness symptoms, headache symptoms, and brain fog symptoms. But I actually spend about five minutes reviewing this with a patient. This is that moment in the talk that either I push the Kleenex box over or I get the hug, right? Because... It is such an empowering thing to show someone that all of these things that they've been dealing with are actually related. So now is the point in the discussion that we talk about what are the treatment strategies? Well, the number one thing you need to do, I would humbly request that you do, is, as Venk said, you want to establish that rapport, you want to establish that hope, and you want to define what the emergency department does. What I would then go forward with is to say, look, you have been decimated by these symptoms. You've got 25 different things going on here. And the tests that they keep doing over and over again always come back normal. I'm sorry that people keep telling you that you're perfectly fine. I don't think you're perfectly fine. I think you have a significant issue going on that is manifesting itself in the 15 or 20 different ways. I think you're centrally sensitized. They'll look at you and be like, what does that mean? Well, that's when you do that forest for the trees type of discussion. That's when you print out my circle and post it somewhere in the emergency department and start going through, do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? These are very easy tools to use. There's an entire inventory called the central sensitization inventory. It's a very simple questionnaire. And you're going to be able to see within two minutes, does this person fit the criteria for central sensitization or not? Once you allay their fears and tell them that they're not making it up. They're not crazy. There is something going on. I promise you that is when they start moving forward with hope. I've listed here common medications. Do I expect you all to start prescribing neuromodulators from the emergency department? Maybe you feel comfortable doing it. Maybe you don't. If you don't, just have the conversation and forward that person to wherever they need to go, whether it's neurology, whether it's the fibro clinic, whether it's post-COVID, whether it's chronic fatigue, forward them to where they need to go. But you can let them know, hey, there are effective treatment options. We won't start that today because we're not your primary care. We're here in the emergency department and I'm making sure you're not going to die tonight. But please, I want you to go home and I want you to read about central sensitization. And I want you to make an appointment and we're going to facilitate that for you. 
and your doctor will talk to you about these options. There's a lot of neuromodulators and they basically do what I said earlier. You have the feel bad chemicals here and the feel good chemicals here. So what do they do? They try to get that closer to a normal balance. There's a variety of medications here, and I've put kind of the comments. Some of these are muscle relaxants. Some of these are helping with antispasmodic symptoms uh, for someone who might have irritable bowel-type symptoms. Believe it or not, analgesics can be used, but the analgesics will not change that imbalance from a neurochemical level. It, it, you can think of it as just being kind of a Band-Aid for the time being, but most of our patients have already exhausted NSAIDs and, and, and acetaminophen, these types of things. Nowhere here do you see me saying anything about opioids, and, and I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, and thank you for what you're already doing. Opioid-induced hyperalgesia pathophysiologically looks identical to central sensitization. So we have done a lot of rodent, not me, People have done a lot of rodent model studies in which they will inject enough stuff, enough opioids into these rats that then they will see that these rats are just centrally sensitized and they will be fearful of that needle coming. They'll be feel, they'll have significant sensory hyperresponsiveness. Their pain levels will go up. Their chemical levels will become more imbalanced. So the only thing I would say don't do is don't talk to the patient openly about this and don't give them opioids because that's the only thing that will actually make them worse. But I've listed here a variety of medications that are helpful even if it's a temporizing measure. And which one should you use? Use whatever the biggest symptom is. If this person came in with a lot of pain, give them a neuromodulator. If this person's not sleeping, give them a neuromodulator. If this person has a lot of uh, abdominal pain and bloating and, and vomiting, we'll give them a serotonergic antagonist and give them uh, a dicyclamine. You know, it's one of these types of combinations of medications. But this should be done knowing that this is a short term until they come and see someone to have the full conversation. This is a very important slide. Of all the medications that I just talked about, on average, about one-third to a half of the patient populations that have been studied do better with medications. One-third to one-half. The non-medication treatment strategies, on average, help about 60 to 66% of the patient population. So already I'm telling you, this slide is more important than the two previous slides. But the two previous slides are a lot easier. We're in a society in which the answers usually are in, the, are in a pill bottle, but not in central sensitization. The non-medication treatment strategies are harder to implement. It's harder to get buy-in. It's harder to set up these appointments and live this stuff. But I'm telling you, the patients that I have seen that have opened up to me and have been willing to not just sample this, <laughs> but to live this, my God, it's a day and night difference. It is an unbelievable difference, but you won't see that difference in the emergency department. I don't even see that difference. I have to wait till an email comes from a patient or a family member two years from the time I saw them. And it's one of two flavors. Either you're the worst doctor on earth. I can't believe you gave me all this nonsense. And, you know, the, and this patient died and you're a horrible person. Okay. I usually just delete that one. The other one is, yeah, we didn't listen to you in the beginning. We fought you, but we realized we weren't getting better with the pills a year into what we after we saw you. So we started doing this religiously. We started doing PT and OT and massage therapy and guided imagery and aquatic therapy. And we started changing how our bodies work. Why? Because the pills only work on that neurochemical imbalance. The non-medications work on the neurochemical imbalance, but also it helps to move you from sympathetic to parasympathetic. So there is a reason why the non-medications work better. Those are the emails that I usually respond back to, right? Because they listened, they did. It's not easy, but if you implement this, it will make a huge difference. So what do I hope for Tony? 
I want you to reassure Tony like you already do. I want you to tell Tony there is something wrong with you. We have effectively ruled out all of these things. And what that leaves is the 20,000 pound elephant in the room. That is what is central sensitization. That's why you're having all of these symptoms occurring for you. That's why all of these symptoms are occurring. Yet when someone looks at you, you look perfectly normal. Your labs look perfectly normal. Your images, they will always look perfectly normal because what is wrong with you is not a tissue or nerve damage. After that occurs, you can tell them to give them some hope. There are treatment strategies here. Your doctor will talk to you about a variety of medications and non-medication strategies, but I want you to go home and I want you to read about central sensitization. I don't know how many patient ed stuff I have done over the last few years. Potentially pull that and make that a resource. You know, I, I don't want to have a footprint in the emergency department, but if you want to have a bundle of stuff to give to a patient, give them something from central sensitization. Believe it or not, I've recorded videos in plumber building about this. It's important. Give them that education let them have their appoint, uh, appointments moving forward. That is what you all can do for Tony to get him better. I've included some references if anyone's interested in, in going deeper into this. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for what you do. And I'm happy to take any questions or comments from the group. Dr. Mohabit, thank you so much. Online, there was a question. Um, how does a patient make an appointment in your clinic from the ED? Do you have yeah. an email? So the the... the the most streamlined way of doing it is for the patient to uh, go to the mayoclinic.org and file for an appointment request through general internal medicine. So the fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, post-COVID, that's part of general internal medicine. So if they make the appointment through GIM, what we ask is that the patient go through the GIM Mayo Clinic workup, which is essentially all the labs, all the conversations, all this, that, so that then they graduate to us. Please. You feel like in the in the emergency department we have enough information to make a discrete diagnosis and to say you have this condition? Or yeah. you recommend that we suggest it as a preliminary diagnosis that needs further yeah. diagnostic yeah. workup? Fantastic question. Um if the story sounds right to you and the person is telling you this is my 14th opinion and this is all, this is my suitcase of labs and they're always normal. And these are all the conditions I have. Then I think it's a pretty much a slam dunk that this is what it is. If however, this is stop number one that, Hey, you know, I'm starting to have some migraines. I have some IBS. I've been dealing with it, but I'm also not sure if you effectively rule out the other things, the bad things that are, that could be possibly going, then I think it's a wise idea to leave that as a preliminary. The docs will talk to you about it. But I want to just plant the seed that this is a potential for what might answer not all that ails you, but the majority of what is wrong with you. So I, I would say I would leave it to your discretion how, how much of the movie is already over. If this is a movie that's still an act, if, well, no one knows movies. If this is like a Netflix episode and you're on episode two, then you might not want to jump too far. If you're already on like episode eight, you know how this is going to end and then you can make that call sooner. Please. Yeah, I was just wondering, I guess sort of related, I had actually both of those questions was, can we put like in the discharge summary, the diagnosis of central sensitization, is that an option within Epic? And then sort of two, as far as practical helping patients leave, um, is what is the, you know, we have patients all the time that say they tried to get into GI or to this or that, and they've 
been denied. If we put in a post-DD follow-up visit for GIM, like you're saying, are they likely to get through? Are they going to get denied? And kind of a follow-up question for people who maybe do live exceptionally far away or, you know, not necessarily follow up at Mayo, like how do they find providers elsewhere potentially for this? Um, Great questions. Um, I'm going to go backwards because my brain remembers the nearest question. Um, It is very difficult to find uh, qualified providers um, if you're just trying to do it online. Um, Usually what I tell people is you, you would need to do some form of Google search that gets you to an academic institution in which people are actually seeing patients with one of the flavors of what we're talking about, whether they have a chronic pain condition, an integrative medicine clinic, whether they have a chronic fatigue clinic, these types of things. Um, From a primary care standpoint, it is very difficult to assume that uh, someone on the front front lines of outpatient care is is doing and comfortable enough seeing this type of of condition. I, I wish I had a better answer on how you can get that information to people who live far, but I will counter it with this. Our patient ed, I, I recorded multiple videos and multiple online multi-hour patient education modules that are available for anyone on Epic. They're completely free of charge. All you have to type is e-learn as one word, E-L-E-A-R-N. Five my- modules will come up. One is for fibromyalgia, one is for chronic fatigue, one is for post-COVID, one is for migraines, and one is for chronic uh, GI conditions. That is something that you can send a patient home with completely free of charge. It'll be linked to their patient portal. They'll get a website. They can open that. Um, You can actually cut and paste a web link for even a person who's not a patient, who doesn't have a clinic number. So if you know a family member or someone reaches out to you, hey, this person's got this and that, you can always send them one of these online modules. The second point of of the comment, and and I'm blanking on what it was. If we give them a GIM after they've already been denied from Mayo Thank you for the reminder. That's usually why they show up to the ED in the first place. Yes, (laughs) and and, and rightfully so. Um, I've I've been here for almost 15 years, and and that's why I, I had Tony's story be exactly that way as well. Do not try to go through GI. I I think it's easier to get a kidney than it is to get into GI these days. Uh, What I would say is have a post-emergency department visit with GIM. And that would be, and and what I would say is this, in your dismissal summary, feel free to say, I think this patient is centrally sensitized. I think they might fit diagnostic criteria. Can you please evaluate them? If it is a very succinct to the point, GIM would love that consultation because we don't have to do the million dollar workup on ruling out every other thing. You've already done the labs. You've already done the imaging. Uh, GIM can see that patient if they need to have any second opinion by GI, neurology, any other ology, they can do that. And then they will end up in my clinic, in, in the fibromyalgia chronic fatigue clinic. We don't have a central sensitization clinic. It, it apparently is very difficult to change the name of a clinic. So we're, we're, we're just called the fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue clinic. Uh, but we see patients every single day who are centrally sensitized. That to, to the individual on, on Zoom, that is what I would do. Try this as a post-ED follow-up in GIM. Make it very clear, not that, oh, this person has medically unexplained symptoms. And because one of my triagers will look at it and be like, I don't think so. We're not going to deal with this. But if you say this person is centrally sensitized, boom, we're going to take that one because we know we're going to fast track that through GIM into my clinic. We're going to see that patient. And we're going to make some advances there. Perfect. Thank you. Absolutely. 
any other, and if there are other thoughts or questions, uh, you can always feel free to, to get a hold of me. On the first slide, uh, it had my, it, you guys know how to, it's last name dot first name. Uh, it, there's only two Mojaves, me or my wife who's in the room, so she'll forward it to me anyway. Uh, so feel free to reach out if there are any questions. Um, and if, if there's anyone in here that's interested in looking at doing, you know, some scholarly work in this and how this relates to the emergency department, uh, feel free to reach out to me. This is such an untapped uh, patient population. Uh, and, and again, we're doing this so that we can get the word out and give that hope that these patients need. So thank you very much for, for everyone's time today. Aria, that was fantastic. Listening to it again allowed me to start building a scaffolding of understanding of this syndrome. And I'm hopeful that over time I can build upon that frame and become even better to help these patients. As you mentioned, it feels like there are so many people struggling with this syndrome around the world. Thank you everyone for listening. Wasn't that outstanding? Please don't forget to subscribe, provide a rating and a comment if you don't mind, and come back for more content on November 1st. Once again, Thank you to all of the emergency nurses and congratulations to Jennifer Finch. Lastly, please be safe and help be a light in the dark in your corner of the globe. I'll catch you next time. The Always On EM Podcast. Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. <laughs>